This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. Okay, sorry for the delay. Okay, we have scripture reading now, so I guess you're ready uh, make use of the time to take the Bible. I will, okay, so I'll be reading from, uh, okay, there are a few passages today. So we'll be reading from the passage of uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to 11, and then we'll skip to chapter 4, verse 9 to 5, chapter 5, verse 5. Okay, so Second uh, Samuel chapter 2, verse 1. So in the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up to the, one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up there with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and in and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. When David was told that it was the man from Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, The Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then, be strong and brave, for Saul, your master, is dead, and the people of Judah have appointed me king over them. Meanwhile, Abner, son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Ashuri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now we we'll skip over to chapter 4, verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Bayana the sons of Raymond, the Beerothite. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the, re that was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Shall I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. And they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel. 
and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of God. I will now pass the time over to Pastor Andrew, who will explain today's passage to us. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Okay, fathers, we come before you this morning. We thank you for giving us your word once again. And we pray that your word will speak to us powerfully and that we will hear you, and that we truly we will only always trust you and the king that you've given us. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I remember when I first met uh, Cheryl, my wife, we were in Sydney, Australia, and she used to live with this cousin. And the cousin was also studying in Australia, and she told us about how one day she was coming home from school. Okay, she was quite young then. She bumped into this guy on the road, and this guy on the road said to him, said to her, sorry, I'm lost. You know, could you help me find my way to some place? And so Cheryl's cousin said, oh, okay, I'll try to help you. And the man said, oh, my car is just over here, and I've got the roadmap here. Would you just follow me to my car? So anyway, the guy uh, seemed a bit suspicious, and Cheryl's cousin, understandably and thankfully, was also very suspicious. So she quickly excused herself, and she quickly ran away from the guy. Now, I think in the world that we live in, it's very hard to know who to trust, right? I mean, was this really an innocent guy who was looking for directions and was really lost, or did he have some evil intent and purpose for my wife's sister, uh, cousin? And we live in a world where there's a trust deficit, like we don't know who to trust, what institutions to trust, what facts to trust. As people become more and more cynical, the reality is people begin to trust no one and nothing. They believe in a lot of conspiracy theories. But today as we look at the passage, it's a reminder that we can trust God and we can trust God's anointed. We're going to be looking at a lot of text today, so I've sort of summarized it. For those of you who haven't actually read all of it, that's okay. You can still go home and follow it, but hopefully you can follow what I'm saying today. For those of you who've done the Bible study, then I hope it brings clarity to what you've been looking at. I can use this thing, is it? Okay, great. Okay, so last week, at the end of 1 Samuel, we saw that David was down in the south, in this place called Ziglag. Whereas Saul and the army and Jonathan, as well as his brothers, were fighting this big battle against the Philistines in this place called Mount Gilboa. Unfortunately, the battle went really badly for King Saul. He was killed, Jonathan was killed, and the Israel's army was also annihilated. So at this point, at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 31, you sort of expect that the promises of God would come to fulfillment because in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God had already told Saul through Samuel that the kingdom would be torn away from him. And in 1 Samuel 16, Samuel had anointed David as king. And so we would expect in some way as we come to 2 Samuel, that David would just immediately step into this power vacuum and he would fill the void and he would become king over all of Israel. But instead, what does David do? Well, this is what David does. In the course of time, David inquired with the Lord 
Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. And the Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went up with his two wives. And David also went with all the men with him. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Now that's really weird, right? I'm going to be using that word quite often, weird. It's weird because if you think about it, here is David, and he's the last remaining army or the last big force of Israel. All of Saul's army, Jonathan and the army are all defeated. He's here in Ziklag. He asked God, where shall I go in Judah? And God says, go to Hebron. And that's really weird, right? Because actually David at this point can choose to go anywhere up into the north where the Philistines are not and, and take power in this power vacuum. But God tells him to stop at Hebron and the only people that he's king over are the people of Judah. Now, have you all ever played this game called Risk? Okay, so I used to play Risk a lot. It's like the next most popular game to Monopoly, right? When you think about Risk, the whole point is world domination, right? I mean, that's why you play Risk, right? I mean, not you don't play Risk at all. But if you think about it, for kings and uh, leaders of country, the whole world is a big game of Risk, right? I mean, that's why you have Putin trying to go to Ukraine, you have Xi Jinping trying to go to Taiwan. But what David does is very unlike what kings should do, right? He restricts himself to Hebron, he restricts himself to Judah, all because he's listening to God and he's obeying and obedient to God and he trusts God. Now, if that's not just weird by itself, then what happens in verse 10 also shows that it's really weird, right? So in verse 10, Ishbosheth, son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel and he reigned for two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. The length of time David was king in Hebron over Judah was seven years and six months. Now, if you look at the chronology, this again shows how unique and how weird the situation is because David, if you think about it, ruled in Judah for seven and a half years. Ishbosheth only ruled for two years. And that means that for the whole of five and a half years, there is this power vacuum in the north of Israel which David can actually step into. Right? But he doesn't do that. But instead, what he does is he allows Ishbosheth to consolidate power when actually he could take power for himself. Now, why does this happen? Why does this weird thing happen? Well, the first thing we see is that David is someone who asks God, someone who listens to God, and someone who obeys God. And more than that, he trusts God. You see, if I was David, I don't know about you, but if I was David, I'll be like, well, God had promised me to be king, right? I should just step in and be king. Why should I wait for God and stay in this small place in Hebron and just be king of Judah? But that's not the only weird thing that happens, right? When David was told that it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who had buried Saul, he sent messengers to them to say to them, the Lord bless you for showing this kindness to Saul, your master, by bearing him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now, if you remember, this goes back to what happened in 1 Samuel chapter 31. After Saul had been defeated, 
and killed by the Philistines. Do you remember what happened? Well, the Philistines, they chopped off Saul's head, right? Okay, so Saul separated, separated from his body. Then they took his body and nailed it to the wall of this place in Bashan, which they had occupied. So the body of Saul remained nailed up to the wall in Bashan. The people of Jabesh Gilead, if you go back to 1 Samuel, I think 13 or 12, this was the city that Saul first rescued right at the very beginning of his reign as king. They actually went into enemy territory and they brought back the body of Saul and they gave him a proper burial. Now that's all well and good. But if I'm David, why does it bother me? Because for like 13 chapters, King Saul has been trying to murder me, he's harassed me, he's hounded me to the extent where he's chased me out of Israel itself. But look at what David does. David actually sends a message from Hebron all the way up to Jabesh Gilead, where he's not the king. But what does he say to the people of Jabesh Gilead? He blesses them, right? He says, verse 6, May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now it's amazing because he is actually willing to bless the people of Jabesh Gilead who rescued and gave a decent burial to the person who'd been trying to murder him and kill him and chase him out of Israel. But more than that, I want us to pay attention to the words that he uses, right? May the Lord show you kindness and faithfulness, and I too will show you the same favor because you have done this. Now the words here, kindness and the faithfulness of God, are intrinsically God's characteristics, right? It is the, these are God's qualities, right? Kindness here is the word in Hebrew for steadfast love. Faithfulness is a characteristic of God. And these are the characteristics by which God revealed himself to Moses when he first made the covenant with his people. So when Moses first received the Ten Commandments up in Mount Sinai, look at what it says there in verse 6. God passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassion and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Exactly what David says, may God bless the people of Jabesh Gilead. But I want you to notice even further, right? That David is saying something even much greater than that, that God is going to show them kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favor. I too will show you God's kindness and faithfulness. So what David is actually saying here is that God is going to show or shelter the people of Jabesh Gilead with kindness and faithfulness. But more than that, it is through God's anointed king, David, that they will also receive God's kindness and faithfulness. So this is a very significant statement that David is making here. He's saying that God's kindness and faithfulness will be mediated, given through him as the anointed king. So many years ago, when I was in ministry training scheme in the University of New South Wales in Sydney, one of our trainers was this guy called Philip Jensen, and he told us this concept about this thing called the umbrella man. 
Okay, what's the umbrella man? He's not some superhero, right? Okay, the umbrella man is just basically someone who, who's like uh, helps guide or mentor people by sheltering them. It could be a boss, it could be a friend, it could be a colleague, right? It's how God, in a sense, shelters people through someone else. And that's exactly what we see here. Basically, David recognizes and wants the people of Jabesh Gilead to be sheltered under God's kindness and steadfast love and faithfulness. But he's actually saying something much greater, that he will be the one who will shelter the people with God's kindness and faithfulness and steadfastness. So what he's claiming about himself is very, very big, right? He asks God, he listens to God, he obeys God, he trusts God, and he is the one in whom God would bring faithfulness and steadfast love to God's people. Now, we then are taken into four chapters, right? Four, it's a very long action sh- uh, section. Uh, you can actually see, I borrowed this uh, narrative structure thing from this guy called Dale Roth Davis, and you can actually see that the four chapters, in a sense, belong to one long narrative. They're not like four individual stories, right? If you kind of watch like Netflix or Apple TV, this would be like one section, like one story, right? You can see that because there's this pattern that we see here. It begins in Hebron. Okay, we already saw that where King David is installed. It ends in Hebron where all Israel come to David and they appoint him to be king. The next section is where Ishbosheth is installed as the king. And again, there's another section at the end which parallels that where he's eliminated as king. And the center section is where all the action happens, right? Where there's Abner, who is this power-hungry person who relies on military, political power, and then the sons of Zariah, right? Joab, Abishai, and Ashahel. Now, if you haven't read these chapters, you may feel a bit com- you know, confused as we go through. But that's okay, that's okay. I'll try to make it as simple as possible. But for those of you who've done the Bible study, hopefully it makes things clearer. But let's start again t- with the geography, okay? So let's remind ourselves where we're at exactly. Okay, so David's down in the south. He's the king of the tribe of Judah. But Ishbosheth is in the north where he's the king of all the other tribes of Israel. So who are the main characters then that we come across in this narrative section? We've got the kings, David and Ishbosheth. But we also have the generals who are under David and Ishbosheth. So the general under David is this guy called Joab, who's called the son of Zariah. And that's going to become important as we go along, right? Remember, he's the son of Zariah. On Ishbosheth's side is Abner. He's the general. And then under them, we've got their like lieutenants, right? The other leaders. And so under Ishbosheth are these leaders called Rechab and Banah. So we're introduced first and foremost to Abner and Joab. Abner is just like this power hungry guy. Right? He's like characterized by the need for power. So the first thing we see is Abner exercising military power. The capital of the northern tribes is this, po- tribe, uh, this place called Mehanaim. And so Abner makes his way down to Gil- Gibeon. So he brings his army and himself down to Gibeon. And so obviously this looks very threatening to the south, right? Because, you know, if I'm David and I'm down here, I, I don't really want Abner's army so close to me. And so Joab and the sons of Zuriah meet him here. And they gather around a pool. Okay, not Bishan swimming pool, but I suppose some big lake somewhere, and they kind of face each other on both sides of this pool. 
So in verse 14, Abner said to Joab, let's have some of the young men get up and fight hand to hand in front of us. And Joab replies, all right, let them do it. Now this is an interesting thing. We're not really told why Abner suggests this. Do they need entertainment, gladiator, game or something? Or does he, you know, maybe Abner thinks that he's got a lot of Goliaths in his uh, army, so he's trying to intimidate Joab, right? But you can sort of see that it is Abner who initiates. He's the initiator in this section. He initiates the military action. He initiates the gladiatorial battle. But it backfires, right, because it leads to great death. All the 12 participants on both sides end up stabbing each other. So this place is memorialized as Helkaf Hazurim, which literally means the field of daggers or the field of hostility or the field of blood. Right? Now the death of these 12 warriors doesn't resolve anything, but instead leads to a great big battle between the armies of Abner and the armies of Joab. We read that Abner and his army, they don't do so well. Joab and his armies managed to push them back into uh, Ishbosheth territory. But that's not the main focus of what happens here, right? Because we see that what Abner has done in his need for military power and the power of violence is going to lead to tragic consequences. So as we see here, Abner, in a sense, gets separated from his army. So, you know, it becomes a, a bit of a chaotic battlefield. And we see that this guy... Asahel, son of Zariah, who is the brother of Joab, decides to chase after Abner. Okay, so Asahel is young, he's fast, Abner looks like he's old and slow. Right? The young guy versus the senior. Okay, so Asahel thinks that he's the predator, but actually, you know, Abner is not as uh, weak as he thinks, lah. So, this, only, this illustration only works, I don't, I'm not sure it really works here, but it will work more on the second service. But if you play online gaming, right, there's this, there's this uh, title that is called The Noob, right? You know, The Noob is where somebody who starts playing the game, they think they know what they're doing, but actually, they're not. Lah. So, like, if you ever play Overwatch, he's like the bronze support, okay? Whereas Abner is like the Grandmaster DPS damage character. Okay. So Abner actually says to, um, to Asahel, look, you, you know, go and pick on someone your own size, right? Go and pick on someone else. You know, if you chase, keep chasing after me, it's going to end really badly for you. But unfortunately, Asahel thinks that he's young and strong. Abner is old and slow. How can he lose? But indeed, he loses, right? Abner stabs him through the, with the butt of his spear, comes out the back of his back, and he kills him. This is a great tragedy, and we will see why it's a great tragedy, because remember who Asahel was? He's the son of Zerai, he's the brother of Joab, the general of David's armies. And Abner has now killed him. So the exercise of military power on Abner's uh, side has actually failed, right? It hasn't achieved what he wants. The next thing we now see about Abner is his use of political power. So in the next section, we see that uh, Abner is a politician, right? He's been strengthening his own position within the house of Saul. We're told in verse 7 that Saul has been sleeping with his concubine 
of, uh, of so, sorry, Abner has been sleeping with Saul's concubine, Rizpah. Now, apparently in the olden days, this is a, a big no-no because it's actually not just a, a sex thing, but it's actually a power play. Remember, power is the name of the game for Abner. Because by sleeping with the concubine, Saul's concubine, you're actually claiming the rights of kingship for yourself. You are like doing what the king is doing. So in a sense, you're saying like you are like the king. So Ishbosheth sees through what Abner is doing and he confronts him. But look at what Abner does. He executes this like 120, 80 degree turn. He does this about turn and he uses his power and instead of supporting Ishbosheth, he now turns to transfer his power to support David. He makes an oath in verse 9, right? May God ever deals, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom of the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Bathsheba. Now, this is not the only time that we see Abner suddenly having theology, right? It's not as if he suddenly has gone to ETCA and understands the Bible better and therefore he's convicted in his heart and therefore he says, oh, okay, we need to go to David's side. It's, it's power, right? Now he supports David because he wants to have influence and gain power in David's kingdom. And as we look at this passage, we actually see that Abner is all about power, right? He wants power, but now instead of getting power within Ishbosheth's kingdom, he gets power or seeks power in David's kingdom. But what we see here is that God is actually using all this, right? He's using the power of Abner in order to achieve what he promised to David. In the critical verses that we read earlier today, he meets up with David. David agrees to become king over all Israel. And three times we are told in three verses that David sent away Abner away, he went in peace. And last of all, in verse 23, you notice the difference. Instead of David doing this, it is the king sent him away and he has gone in peace. And so by the end of actually chapter 3, we see that the trust of David and God has actually been fulfilled, right? Without actually invading the north, without seizing power for himself, the tribes of the north have actually come and made him king. And the whole kingdom now is at peace. And so we see that at this point, David, for all intents and purposes, is the king that God has promised. And God has kept his promise. And the trust of David has been fulfilled. But we actually see that before this is totally fulfilled, David has two more crises, right? So the trust of God, of David, on God, is justified. God has shaped things through the power hunger of, of Abner to achieve what he's promised. But there are two crises which happen, right? And the first crisis is this unresolved vendetta between Joab, son of Zariah, David's general, and Abner, Ishbosheth, general. Now, you remember what happened in the first battle where Asahel, the noob, chased uh, Abner, right, the grandmaster, and he got stabbed in one stroke, and he died. So here in this section, we see that Joab is very deceitful. He calls Abner back 
to, you know, back to, to Hebron. Abner thinks that it's uh, King David who's actually asked him to come back, maybe revise the terms of the agreement. Who knows, right? But Joab, very deceitfully, stabs Abner through the stomach. Looks familiar, right? Eye for an eye, a stab for a stab. He kills Abner out of revenge, hate, and vendetta. So, out of all the characters that we are seeing here, this is the first crisis that David faces. right? Because what is the character of David again? Remember, he is the one who will bring God's, he's the one that mediates God's steadfastness and, uh, and loving kindness to people. Will the kingdom that allows this sort of murder still be mediating God's steadfast love and, and, and faithfulness? To God's people, well, can't, right? Okay, so that's the first crisis. The second crisis is after Abner is murdered, Ishbosheth, in Mahanaim, uh, kind of realizes that the, all the tribes have gone over to David now, his general is murdered, and he is hiding in his house. We then introduce to his two lieutenants, right, or the leaders, Rechab. And Bana. These are his own tribesmen. These are his own people. We are told that Rechab and Bana set out for the house of Ishbosheth. When they arrived in the heat of day, Ishbosheth was taking his noonday rest. They went to the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. And then Rechab and his brother Bana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying in his bed, and after they had stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by the way of the Arabah. Now, as we read this, we kind of think, uh, you know, the writer of 2 Samuel, very Chonghei, right? He already told us in verse 6 that these guys went in and they killed him, and then they went away, right? Then verse 7, they repeat the same thing again. Okay, it's not that they are Chonghei, it's just that... Um, this is the Hebrew way of writing. You notice that the way that the Hebrews write in their narrative is they like to be repetitive. So they repeat things, but they add new details. Two things are repeated here which are significant. One is that he was taking his noonday rest, and then he was lying in his bed, in his bedroom. And so what the writer is trying to emphasize to us is just how vulnerable Ishbosheth is. Here's a guy sleeping in his own house, in his own bed. And in Rechab and Bana, they come and kill him. But in verse 7, the writer adds another detail, right? And this is important for us. They cut off his head. And what the writer is trying to say to us without actually saying it in words is just how vile and despicable and brutal this act is. Here's this guy sleeping in his afternoon nap in his own bed, in the privacy of his own house, and two of his own tribesmen come in deceitfully, stab him and kill him, and cut off his head. How vile and wicked that must be, right? So, David is now left with these two crises that he has to deal with. The first one is Joab killing Abner. Recap and Bana killing Ishbosheth. Both of them 
are wrong. Both of them are unjust. Both of them are murder in God's eyes. David has to deal with this very decisively because if he doesn't do it, then he cannot be God's anointed king who brings the shelter of steadfast love and faithfulness to God's people. So what does David do? Well, for the first case in Joab, he makes Joab walk in front of the funeral and he behind weeps for what Abner has done, even though Abner was really the enemy general, right? But at this point, in verse 39, he recognizes that he is too weak and the sons of Zuriah are too strong for him. But he curses them. He says, may the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil deeds. So we know that at some point in time, justice will come to Joab and that David is innocent of this despicable act of killing Abner. For the act of Rechab and Bana, David says, look, the last time, okay, we didn't do uh, 2 Samuel chapter 1, but in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David ordered the execution of someone who claimed to kill Saul. But here, Rechab and Bana actually did kill an innocent person in his own house, in his own bed. And so David gave the order to have these men killed. So what this actually shows us is the character of the kingdom that David brings. Right? That he is truly the one who listens to God, obeys God, and trusts in God. And indeed, he is the one who brings God's steadfast love and faithfulness and shelters his people. So what do we see here? Well, first of all, we show that it is worth trusting God, right? Because God has fulfilled the promise to David in spite of the, the evil and the wickedness of the Abners and the Joabs and the Recaps and Banah. By the end of chapter 2, verse 5, David is king over the whole of the 12 tribes of Israel. The second thing is, God is worth trusting because he brings the type of king, the anointed king, where indeed in David, God's steadfast love and his faithfulness is mediated through. And therefore, for the original reader, I think, of 2 Samuel, it's actually saying this king is God's king. And he is the king that really the people have been looking for. But as we look at this passage, we're not living that time, right? Because David is the king who shelters Jabesh Gilead, the 12 tribes of Israel. But we're not Israel and we're not the 12 tribes. So in many ways, David is actually looking forward and pointing to the true king, the eternal king, who is perfect in every way, Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. These two words, right, faithful and merciful, are actually the same equivalence in Hebrew to the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God, which also David was meant to show God's people. So Jesus, because he is this faithful and merciful high priest, we are meant to fix our thoughts on Jesus. We are to trust in God and trust in anointed Christ that God has sent us in Jesus. So this passage really is about trust, right? Do we trust in God? Do we trust that God will bring us his faithfulness, his mercy, as well as to 
shelter us in his kingdom. So in conclusion, I want us to think about uh, David and how, in a sense, he only shelters his own people, but Jesus, he's the one who shelters all of us today. Now, I was reading that uh, in America, there's this huge shopping mall called the King of Prussia. Interesting name, right? The King of Prussia. Now, this uh, shopping mall is uh, apparently near Pennsylvania in America, and it is really, really huge. It's like, it's like the size of, I don't know, Amokyo, looks like, right? <laughs> Who knows, right, how big this... Uh, they always do things bigger and better in America, right, okay? So apparently this mall is 2.6 million square feet. I don't know, I can't even figure out how big 2.6 million square feet. Has 22 million annual visitors, and apparently it's like uh, voted the best mall in America, third largest in the whole of America, okay? So the king of Prussia. What was really uh, interesting and funny about the king of Prussia is the tagline. Okay, so the tagline is, your kingdom awaits, right? Because, you know, it's the king of Prussia, right? So your kingdom awaits. You can see it, right? So uh, this is part of the advertisement. You might not see it. It's called the queen of Prussia because, you know, the king of Prussia. But the tagline at the bottom is, your kingdom awaits. I mean, in many ways, I think we sort of think of, uh, you know, okay, our kingdom is consumerism, our kingdom can be like, you know, the promise of going to this mall and buying whatever you want. But in a sense, that's not really our kingdom, right? I mean, we, 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 we might think of consumerism and, and going to the mall and buying stuff as our kingdom, but our true king is not the king of Prussia, but the king of the whole earth, right? The king of heaven, which is God. And our true king is Jesus Christ. And he is the one through whom God brings us shelter of his steadfast love and his faithfulness. So don't put your hope in the king of Prussia where your kingdom awaits, right? But put your trust in God and God's son because it's only through Jesus, God's anointed, that we will be sheltered under God's steadfast love and his mercy and his faithfulness. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to ask that you will help us to see how you are a God worthy of trust. David trusted you and indeed he fulfilled the promises of him being king over all of your people. Help us to see as well how you mediate through David your promises of bringing steadfast love and mercy and kindness and faithfulness to your people. Help us to see how that points to Jesus today and how indeed the kingdom that we await, the kingdom that we look forward to is not the, the big shopping malls of the world or the consumerism or the things that we can buy in this world. But the kingdom that we look forward to is your kingdom and the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of your love and mercy and kindness and faithfulness to us. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for the sermon. So we do not have uh, time for uh, reflection and discussion uh, due to the, today being the Communion Sunday. So I'll still flash out uh, this, the question onto the, uh, for everyone so that you can actually take it uh, you know, in a discussion over tea break or lunch later on. So the question is, 
Why is it so important to rely only on Jesus Christ than a human being for God's shelter of steadfast love and faithfulness? Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.